0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: This is The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: For the last year plus on this program, we've been speaking with Benice Thomas and with Gord Bibby. They are the sister and cousin, respectively, of Robert Hall, who was traveling in the Philippines with his, on his sailboat. He was, as most of you know, he was kidnapped by the ISIS-affiliated group Abu Sayyaf Terrorist Organization, and uh, they murdered Mr. Hall, and they beheaded him. And the government of Canada has been spectacular in its absence of resolve to get anything done other than to tell the families to shut up, to not talk to media. And that's what Mr. Hall's family has dealt with, and shouldn't be talking to media, but they've continued to talk to me and to uh, to you through me. And uh, a few weeks ago, Denise Thomas actually went to Ottawa, flew to Ottawa, at the invitation of the federal government to meet with the global affairs minister, Christian Freeland, and RCMP, senior RCMP officers, remember the family was told that they weren't allowed to negotiate with the terrorists for their brother and cousin and family members' release. They'd be in serious trouble if they did that. So Benice Thomas went to Ottawa, but before she went, she said, I want to meet with Justin Trudeau. And you're going to hear during the interview what happened when, when she raised that. So we spoke on Friday, late Friday afternoon, and you haven't heard this anywhere else. So listen now to Bernice Thomas and Gord Bibby as they talk about the background, as they talk about the visit to Ottawa, as Bernice tells us what in fact happened when she met with Justin Trudeau, how he responded to the five demands the family had, how Christian Freeland responded, and what the RCMP had to say. And when I uh, I began, I I asked um, Bernice this question, how did the trip to Ottawa— come about have a listen
2: i think truthfully roy it's a little bit of being a dog on a bone like just not letting go um you know i have as my family has and extended family and friends uh we have doggedly been reaching out to the government for well over two years now it's been exhausting and um i i think it's just perhaps they, they finally came to the conclusion we're not going away and our media presence was perhaps getting a little more uh, far-reaching and a little louder, and uh, and 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 I think just, you know, covering their bums and doing a little bit of trying to do some damage control. I, I, I you know, I, I have to say perhaps on the part of the RCMP, it was uh, actual... Um uh, movement towards uh, reconciling some of the difficulties and problems that they they saw happening. Um, but I think very much so on the part of Global affairs Canada and the government of Canada, it was um, a appeasement, you know, just trying to to tamp things down so that they weren't in the spotlight.
0: so if you had never had, conversations with media if you've never if you'd never both of you come on this program and spoke about your brother or your cousin and the frustrations that you've had to live with with ottawa you never would have been asked to go there there would have been no interest in speaking with you
2: i doubt it i doubt it yeah i um i mean any any uh sort of dialogue that has happened at all with Government of Canada has been, in my opinion, um, uh, brought about by our insistence that we want to talk to the government. We want to get to the bottom of this. We want to know what happened. We want to know the shortfalls, where they, where they made mistakes, what they're going to do about that. And I think the Government of Canada and Global Affairs Canada would have been completely content to just let this you know, dissolve with sunset. Like, just not mention it again, and and continue on.
0: Benice, uh, you insisted that you have the opportunity to meet with Justin Trudeau, with the Prime Minister. How did that go over?
2: A mm-hmm. uh, lot of resistance. Uh, was told, you know, we were invited to Ottawa and told that we were going to. You know meet with um higher end officials from global affairs canada and from the rcmp um and which was you know i was happy to hear that but I, I immediately began insisting that i wanted to speak to the prime minister because the buck stops with him um and was met with a lot of resistance he's a busy guy you know so just resistance 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 and and while we were in Ottawa, we were literally hourly saying, when are we going to meet the Prime Minister? When are we going to sit down with him? And and just continued to push that agenda. Like, we need to speak to the man that was at the helm of this and making the decisions that Buck stopped with. We need to speak with him. And it was literally in the 11th hour that he
3: agreed to speak with us.
0: Gord, anything you want to add to this?
3: No, really. I, I think it's uh, definitely uh, the persistence of, uh, of the family, and especially of Bonnie's, uh, that uh, she's like a pit bull. <laughs> she gets on, and she just doesn't let go. And I think that's the direct result why uh, why the meetings were set up, and also why she was able to meet with uh, the PM.
0: Well, they did treat you rather shabbily for an extended period of time. They didn't really have any interest in looking after your affairs. They're quite happy to bring, and Trudeau has said this, he's quite happy to bring ISIS terrorists into Canada and says they'll be able to contribute considerably and extraordinarily to Canada going forward. Uh, and he had time to meet with Joshua Boyle and Boyle's family, but no time to meet with you until you're really pushed and you demanded, Bernice. So at what point of the, of the proceedings did you meet Justin Trudeau? Was it close to the beginning or close to the end?
2: It was the last day.
0: The last day. Can we talk yeah. about, can we talk about how that, uh, about how that uh, meeting with Justin Trudeau went?
2: Sure, sure.
0: Tell us what sure. happened, we please. We were,
2: um, well, we were, um, you know, ushered into, of course, the, the house there, and um, he, he took a meeting with us first thing in the morning. Um, you know, we were immediately told he's a very busy guy, he's only got so much time, and, you know, of course, that's understandable. Um I got to say, when, when the door to his office opened and he took a look at us, he, he, looked, <laughs> he looked a little concerned trying to figure out who was who. Um, but um, anyway, so we went in, we sat down with him, and um, um, you know, we were very clear with him initially that uh, we weren't there for any reason other to than to tell him. What we wanted to see happen and and that we wanted to see some accountability coming from him and his his leadership and um, And so we laid out um, What we call our five asks to him which encompass you know a lot of what's been going on for the last couple of years and um, You know discussed these five asks with him and um, got, you know, his assurances that he was, you know, none of it was impossible and he was, he was on it. And um, here we are still waiting.
0: And you had a sense that he was genuinely interested in doing what your five asks were? Or was it more a case of, I'll answer this and hopefully they'll leave?
2: Well, you know, he is—he's—he's uh, 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 he's a good player. That guy, like he's—he's he's very, very good at reading people, and um, and and uh, putting forth what he feels is correct for the situation. I mean, he seemed—he came across as very compassionate, uh, but. But, you know, I'm sorry, uh, my learned experience of dealing with government of Canada is that um, they're not sincere and they're not compassionate, and they want us to go away. And And so that was what I was reading into everything, is just, you know, I you know, and, he, and he did say some kind things, you know, I'll give him that, and, and did show, show, you know, some compassion for what happened to my brother, but... But I think it, it 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 just all of it feels like appeasement to me, and you know it. Uh, and and based on what's happened since,
1: was 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 not sincere. You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML.
0: So my conversation with Bonice Thomas, the sister of Robert Hall, and Gord Bibby, Robert Hall's cousin, continued about their visit to Ottawa and their time with the Prime Minister, with the Global Affairs Minister, Christian Freeland, and with the RCMP. Remember, as well, the family had put together the electronic petition 696, in which they had demanded an inquest into what had happened. And that petition was read into the record in Parliament, but nothing was done about it, even though the federal government had every opportunity. They have been foot-dragging and heel-dragging until... They became so flustered and embarrassed, I suspect, by the family's discussions with me and other media that they started to challenge them and then invited the family to Ottawa. Here's more of my conversation with Bernice Thomas and Gord Bibby. And um, yeah, just, just, just have a listen here.
3: Well, I, you know, this, uh, the more I think about uh, the stalling and, and uh, the lack of compassion, whatever, I, I've, I somehow wonder if this just isn't a, uh, a component of big government, a big bureaucracy. I mean, are we expecting too much for our government to, uh, to actually do this? And uh, I'm beginning to think that it can't, although it, it should. It should. I mean, every Canadian should have the right to, uh, to uh, security and, uh, and certainly getting answers as to why, why a loved one was uh, butchered in a foreign land. Uh, I, uh, either that or the, the people are incompetent. I, I, I don't know which way to take this. Yeah. Right.
0: Other governments have stood up for their, their citizens and have uh, interceded and helped, I believe, with ransom payments. Uh, this government has has done none of the above. What would the key ask be, uh, Benice that you had of um, of uh, Justin Trudeau and of the uh, Global Affairs Minister? What was what was most important to you?
2: Well, I actually had five asks, or we had five asks, Roy, and they were all all significant to us. Um, so I can quickly go through them. Sure. Um, our first ask was that that the Prime Minister make a public statement, um, apology, if you will. And you can do that in the Commons or you can do it in front of, uh, you know, the t- television cameras. Just for the, the the bungled, insensitive and disastrous handling of my brother's murder in particular in relation to how our families were treated and, um, and asking him to make a commitment to... Um, to listen and make effective and and meaningful change to policy within government to ensure that no family endures this again so that was the first ask uh the second ask was was just some help with my brother's remaining assets in um in the philippines navigating that um the third ask was that uh that the prime minister when when speaking with canadian companies that have international interests that that he start asking for commitments of monetary donations to the creation of an ngo along the lines of say hostage uk or hostage us that that can independently help families navigate this horror show uh because we didn't have any help going through this and we were just at sea Trying to figure out what was going on, so um, that would be very helpful. Um, one of the big asks was that moving forward, uh, new policies, new ways of being and doing by both the government and the RCMP go under the banner banner of the Renova protocols. Uh, Renova was the name of my brother's boat, and it and its its meaning is is is. Uh, new growth and moving forward, and and I was pretty insistent. I want that legacy for my brother to move forward uh, to ensure that families are cared for and hostages. And then the fifth ask was um, for some significant financial compensation. We've got a really damaged family and layers of damaged family, and we have grandchildren coming up that are going to need help when they start seeing the images that are rampant on the internet of their grandfather's murder. Um, so so those are the five asks in a nutshell. Okay. Um, and the the Prime Minister literally looked us in the eyes and 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 sincerely said, None of this is impossible and I'm
1: on it. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, heard weekends from two to five on nine hundred CHML.
0: The Federal government of Canada was at the very best indifferent. They did not respond, Christian Freeland, the global affairs minister, did not respond time and again uh, to uh, to communications from Bernice Thomas, time and again, nothing, nothing. How can you be so uncaring and so unfeeling? I know you have an agenda, and if it's not part of your agenda, it's just a distraction, I guess. I have an email here from uh, Sharon. My husband and I are listening to your program. And he wondered if he was right that he'd heard that special forces in Canada were ready and wanted to go and felt they could get Robert Hall out but were turned down. Is this the same incident? There had been talk, yes, that uh, special forces units from Canada that would have been Joint Task Force 2 and the Americans and the Filipino uh, special forces were all ready to go. And then the story started to develop that it was a very difficult area and it would have been very difficult to get in. We, we understand that. That's why they're called special forces. And if those military minds feel they can get the job done, then let them do the job. There was talk that it was turned down at the highest levels in Canada. There was talk about that. Let me play now for you uh, part three of my conversation with Bernice Thomas and Gord Bibby about their brother and cousin and their family's desires and wishes, and her visit to Ottawa to meet with Justin Trudeau, Christian Freeland, and the RCMP. Bernice, could you tell us who uh, in the government, among the elected members uh, of the government and of Cabinet, you had an opportunity to actually speak with? Uh,
2: so we spoke with, we had an audience with uh the prime minister trudeau we had an audience with uh foreign affairs minister Christian freeland and um uh, omar al gabra uh, so those were the, the the sort of big catches in the government that we were able to speak to
0: okay and how did you come away with what did you come away with after your conversations with Christian freeland and omar al gabra what uh, what what vibes did you get from those conversations
2: um, again, you know, Freeland was very much like Trudeau, you know, the, the soft, you know, old, you know, sensitive new age, whatever. Um, I, I di- literally didn't get any commitments of anything from Freeland. Uh, Omar al uh dedicated that he would handle our second ask, which was to help us with, uh, dealing with in a, in a. In a timely fashion, uh, my brother's assets that are still remaining in the Philippines—that uh, hasn't come to tr- fruition three and a half months later. So we're on that again. But um, uh, yeah, Freeland, it, it was—it was more, you know. They sh- we should add cookies and tea. It was, you know, not very productive as far as I'm concerned. Okay. So, uh, but she heard us, and we, and I told her the five asks as well. Okay. You know, and and she's very cordial, but but. of ineffective.
0: Now, we also had the opportunity to meet with the RCMP. What can you share with us about Mm -hmm. that, senior members of the RCMP? Uh, So we,
2: yeah, we, so we had, you know, three days of meetings in Ottawa, and um, one of those days we spoke with very, very high-ranking officials from Global Affairs Canada and the top dogs from RCMP, um, international uh, RCMP, and, um, you know, I was, I, I went in there with a lot of distrust for the RCMP well, and for Global Affairs as well, but with the RCMP just because of the way we had been handled throughout all of this. And, and I got to say, I was turned around by their, their sincere compassion, their, their sincere interest in what we had to say, and um, their sincere commitment to changing their way of doing things and understanding this ain't nineteen fifty anymore, they have to get with a new way in a in a new global scenario of dealing with these sorts of incidences and the fallout from them and the families that are involved and and so i I must say i was uh I was impressed, and and that doesn't mean to say that I haven't had to sort of stay on top of them too, or we've had to stay on top of them to ensure that we're getting information from them. But they have made you know what what seemed like very small movements forward, but they have made movements forward in a short period of time um, and and that you know gives me some hope that that we were heard and that they are doing what they can to keep their commitments to our family
0: there's uh, something else that, that needs to be said and uh, that is that you and your family are also doing this for Canadians generally because we don't know oh, what, sure. right we don't know which Canadian family is going to find themselves in similar circumstance and how quickly that could occur and you don't want any other Canadian family to experience the difficulties that that your family has experienced and continues to experience
2: indeed roy i mean as i say this isn't 1950 anymore this is a very very changed world and i and i mean just you know a month ago a couple of canadians were taken hostage it was thankfully handled within under a week i think uh with everybody coming out okay but you know, this, uh, this happens every day, somebody is is taken hostage every day, all over the globe, and um, there has to be, like, I I wouldn't wish this nightmare on anybody, it's just been, it's been devastating, mentally, physically, emotionally,
1: uh,
2: for, for so many of us, it's just, and it, and it goes on, and on, and on, and, uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. So, so you know, I really take the re- the. I take personally the responsibility to take our government to task to say fix this because it uh, it. In this day and age, this this is not how, how how we care for people.
0: A remarkable woman, really remarkable woman, Bernice Thomas.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.
0: So I uh, retweeted uh, conservative MPs tweet of last night and uh, that tweet showed and suggested that Prime Minister Trudeau had two years ago made the commitment to visit Atawapiscat, the indigenous community in northern Ontario that has faced some really, really serious challenges, like proper housing in the very, very cold winters and water and drug uh, issues and suicides of their young people, really important matters. And uh, I've heard from listeners uh, by way of email recently, and uh, by way of email and on Twitter, their concern has been that um, the federal government has not done what it can do or should do for First Nations people, and they mentioned that Chief Bruce Shishish joins me from, he's the former chief of Attawapiskat, he joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Chief Shishish, thank you very much for the time.
4: Good afternoon.
0: What are the conditions that you're dealing with as a community this winter? Have things improved significantly over the last couple of years?
4: Well, I can say that uh, as a former chief of Attawapiskat, and despite of the is from both governments, Ontario and federal governments, little has changed in my community or still in need of uh, help of a more uh, permanent uh, health mental um, mental health workers. Um, I guess not only Adewabishka but also mental health uh, assistance um, are short-lived temporarily uh, help, no follow up. Needs more follow up from what we, uh from mental health and it needs more uh we need to be more consistent. And my people are are still suffering from poor conditions, poor housing, overcrowding, um, poor water supply. For employment, and uh, the list goes on and on and on. And um, uh, as as Canada knows, or uh, you know, that that I was told by the Prime Minister himself and the leaders that the ministers would do something about our communities. Not only at Omsk, but also other communities, and, and still today that. Uh, we're still waiting for them, for them um, sources to come into our communities. As an example, uh, uh, during the Christmas holidays, over the holidays, I was up in North and I saw this empty trailer, and I asked one you know, of my cousins, "What is that trailer for?" And my
3: uh, one of my cousins said,
4: "That's supposed to be uh, the mental health workers." Uh, that's where they're supposed to be living while they're working in Idaho. office. So, uh, so it's been it's been about two years.
0: So you've had the trailer for two years, but you don't have the mental health workers. There's
4: no permanent health workers living there.
0: Have you and heard?
4: Least, uh, and our young people are still uh, suffering. Yeah. Um, there's still suicide ideations. Still not only in Erdogan, but also across Canada, like Northwestern Ontario, we hear our young people taking their own lives. And yes, our young people are still struggling. They're still struggling with drugs, alcohol, and many other things. And a lot of our young people are losing hope. And it's very dark for them, void for them. Their solution is... Suicide, and as you know, suicide rate is as high as 50% the national average in some communities.
0: That's just so heartbreaking. And, yeah, and if
4: our, our children, our youth, our families all suffer from the effects of uh, also the residential school and from the child welfare, uh, welfare system. You know, the, from the time that the grandparents and parents spent at the school and in care robbed them, you know, they, they were robbed of so much that robs their children. The abuse that they went through, you know, the abuse that they suffered and the loneliness and the isolation that they endured left. Left a legacy that today it affects the children, the families, our young people, even myself, uh, the residential school. My mom and dad went to the residential school, and today I still feel the, the effects of the residential school. You know, I remember my dad passed on uh, about three to four years ago, and I never heard my dad telling me that he loves me you know and uh, and just recently my mom told me that she loved me for the very first time you know so there's there's a healing that is happening among our our young people today and, uh, and even myself
0: have have you heard from Prime Minister Trudeau at all since he promised two years ago to visit?
4: No, we haven't heard from the from the prime minister. Uh, I, I recall, I recall in a letter stating that he that he is looking forward to visiting Arubavskat in the near future. You know, he, he wrote to me that time when I was a chief in May two thousand sixteen that he would visit Arubavskat in the near future. Still, no sign of him. You know, uh, we're not far from Ottawa. It's only about three to five-hour lane range, you
0: know. Do you believe, Chief Shishish, that governments really care about, about you other than when there's a national media attention because you as a community made a decision to publicly share what you're facing? Do they care about you when, when you're not in front of them?
4: I believe. uh, I guess since uh, that time when we declared the state of emergency, I believe that uh, I believe I can say that yes, uh, I'm thankful for the support that they provided. I'm thankful, you know, but it was more like a band aid. uh, for our community and still today like I said when I started the interview here there's still no sign of permanent mental health workers uh, where are they you know uh, whose fault is it I I don't know who to uh, ask
0: shouldn't have? shouldn't you shouldn't have to the Prime Minister committed to visiting your community in person two years ago
4: yes Yes, I heard him, yeah. I, I still have the letter. I still have... Uh, I remember when I met him that day that he said that he would visit Idlewavisket. And still no sign of him.
0: What is your... What is your greatest need? Is it the mental health
3: support?
4: The greatest need, I'll say, to be honest, is housing. So you know, probably one family... One family the whole family there'll be about maybe ten to twelve people living in in two bedroom house or three bedroom house. There'll be about five people in there. So our greatest need will be the housing, the water, you know, a better a better uh, service, or resources for our community. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I suspect, Chief Shishish, that the fact that we're talking, you and I, and it's being carried on the Chorus Radio Network on, uh, in major cities across Canada, that the word will get back to Ottawa, and perhaps Mr. Trudeau will say, oh, I forgot. Perhaps Mr. Trudeau will pay a visit and see what you're facing and what your challenges are, and understand. understand you received a trailer for mental health care workers two years ago, but no mental health care workers. To be there permanently, Chief. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. If you don't mind, I'm going to stay in touch with you.
4: Yes, uh, thanks for asking me to do the interview. I was honored, and uh, you know, so just uh, I'll just wait and wait and wait as I usually do.
0: You know, maybe we can put a
4: minister to visit my community.
0: Maybe we can put a little pressure on. Okay. Thank you, Chief. Thank you, Bruce Shishish, the former chief of Attawapiskat in northern Ontario.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.
0: Great deal has been said, written, and commented on as far as the uh, the, uh, contretemps, as my friends in Quebec would say, between British Columbia and Alberta about uh, the northern gateway pipeline no more B.C. wine, and then they gave up. Because the premier of British Columbia said, we'll go to their courts to decide, have the courts decide, whether the extension of the Northern Gateway pipeline is going to be permitted. So I don't know who got hoodwinked. Maybe they hoodwinked each other. But what's what's going on is, and this is not the first time, is that our national economy is hurting because of these kinds of initiatives or these kinds of events. We bring hundreds of thousands of gallons, our liters, of oil into this country every day, but we don't export our own, and we don't use our own as much as we should and as much as we could because it's politically incorrect and There's an orchestrated and concentrated effort underway to stop the development of Canadian natural resources. Calvin Haleen, who's the chairman of the Eagle Spirit Pipeline Group, told us a few weeks ago that uh, there are American organizations that are just pouring money into this country and particularly trying to appeal to indigenous peoples to get in the way of the pipelines. Vivian Krauss is the acknowledged expert on this issue. She writes uh, for the Financial Post. She's also on Twitter, at Fair Questions. There's a website we'll talk about in a minute. And uh, we're glad that Vivian is with us because this is a hugely, hugely important issue. It's not being properly addressed by premiers or by the prime minister. And Denny Coderre has gone, so we don't really have anybody to yell at who will yell back stupidly. Uh, Vivian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Good to talk to you.
5: Thanks so much for having having me, Roy. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, let's talk. First of all, give us an, an outline, please, of what the concern, what the issue is, and then we'll talk about where the money's coming from to block the Canadian, the, the 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 mining and the and the use and the and the exportation of our natural resources.
5: Okay. Well, as you just said, Roy, you know the issue here is that our national economy is being hurt. In fact, uh, Scotiabank just a couple of weeks ago came out with a report which said that the, the cost, the loss in, in royalties and revenue to our country because of the fact that we can't export oil to overseas markets is something on the order of $117 billion over the last few years. So you know, whenever you have something that's impacted our whole country to the tune of more than $100 billion, we have a big issue here. And, of course, um, you know, there's a lot of controversy now over pipelines. They didn't ever used to be an issue. No one used to talk about pipelines. And they wouldn't even be in the news. We wouldn't be talking about pipelines at all. This is basic infrastructure that's under the ground. It's out of sight. Nobody thinks about it or talks about it. But it has become a controversy, and that has been deliberately manufactured. It's been created um, as part of a systematic campaign, uh, financed um, by U.S. interests, and now you know this campaign has actually been in the works now for about ten years, and it's got to the point where it's it's having a significant impact. It's preventing um, our, our our country from being able to build major infrastructure projects, and now of course the spat between British Columbia and Alberta is spilling over to other industries. It's even hurting industries with small companies, like you know small wine producers. So. This has really gotten to the point way, way, way way past where it ever should have gotten. But it's time now. We are where we are. And we need to ask, you know, why did we get here? How did this happen? Mm-hmm. Um, who's behind this? What's actually going on? And what do we do about it?
0: So you did, uh, you did a lot of digging, and you found that uh, there's money coming from the United States in, in large uh, amounts. And the money is being directed to uh, specific groups and organizations, which will get in the way. Of pipelines, the development of natural resources. What did you find out? How did you uh, how did you come on it? And who who should we be most concerned about? Where should the focus be?
5: Well, <clears throat> those are all the key questions, Roy. You know, I stumbled across this uh, originally. It's it's goes back 15 years now that I've been looking at this. too, when I worked in the salmon farming industry, and then I guess it was about 10 years ago. Um, I was actually a, a director of a nonprofit, a charity. Um, that tries to find families for, for children that need to get adopted. Anyway, while I was doing that work, I stumbled across, quite, quite unexpectedly, some payments for the campaign against salmon farming. And this is where I started to look at, at the funding behind activist campaigns. So for a couple of years there, I followed the money on the campaign against farm salmon. I traced the funding on more than 100 organizations, and it all came from the same source, was the Packard Foundation in California. And what I found was that the campaign against aquaculture was part of a much larger campaign to prop up the market for commercial fisheries. So they were campaigning against the farm salmon in favor of its competitor in the market, which is the wild salmon, most of which is coming from Alaska. And what I found is that, of course, the exaggeration um, of the environmental impacts and risks of aquaculture, not to say that there aren't any, There there are legitimate issues, but by exaggerating the, the environmental impacts, they were mitigating or softening the market impacts, because commercial fisheries, in fact, had been really hurt by the aquaculture industry that produced actually a product that chefs like better, consumers like better. So this is what got me looking at environmental controversies from a marketing perspective. And of course, then, while I was still doing that research on on salmon farming, I just stumbled by accident across a large number of payments for a a thing called the Tar Sands Campaign. This was back in 2010, seven years ago. And at first, of course, you know, there was absolutely no publicly available information about it. So we had no way of knowing what it is, you know, this Tar Sands Campaign. We didn't know. Was it against Gateway? Was it against the Keystone Pipeline? You know, what was it about? But, of course, what's happened over over the last seven years is, you know, drip by drip, more information has come to light. And in fact, last fall, the individual who has been directing this this campaign now for for more than a a decade, his name is Michael Marks, he put on the website of one of the organizations that's behind the scenes that, in fact, from the very beginning, and I'm I'm quoting in the man's own words, he said, from the very beginning, the campaign strategy was to, and I quote, landlock the the tar sands crude to keep it out of international markets where it could fetch a high price per barrel. So now there we have it, you know, straight from the the individual who's been behind this this campaign has funded more than 100 organizations in Canada and the U.S. and in Europe. The Tides Foundation, um, which is an organization that has been an intermediary between the large billionaire philanthropists who are financing this and the small organizations that are receiving the money, TIDES alone has made more than 400 payments, more than 400 checks and wire transfers to organizations that are all involved in creating a fuss over pipelines. And of course, there are legitimate issues you know, associated with our use of oil. We use more than 1,000 barrels of oil per second. It's an enormous amount of oil. There are legitimate issues, and they need, they need to be addressed. But what's happening now is that Economic and trade interests are being protected. The U.S. monopoly is being maintained by these campaigns that are preventing the construction of pipelines.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and that's we, really we have to—we have to remember that our our oil, when it's sold in the United States, is sold at a discount. So it's not as though we're making uh, the kind of money or earning the kind of money that would help our economy and help our social programs and help our needs. Uh, by selling our uh, our oil and, and gas only to the United States, it's not it's not something that we can uh, continue forever, because they have huge supplies themselves, and uh, eventually it's going to be about alternative industries, but not, uh, alternative energy, but not right now. The oil is still a, a huge factor. Now, did I do I understand correctly that one organization has put more than one hundred and ninety million dollars into this country?
5: Yes, that'd be the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Now, I I would clarify that not all of that money um, was for the campaign against pipelines. The Gordon and Benny Moore Foundation has put $190 million, most of which has gone for what they call marine planning, okay? But the trouble is that and these marine plans involve the creation of parks. So it's zoning of coastal areas, usually to exclude um, um, the tankers and... Infrastructure, ports, anything to do with the fossil fuel industry. So, in other in other words, this marine planning is blocking trade. Uh, that's I'm all for marine parks. You know, there are sensitive areas. You know, breeding grounds for all sorts of species, especially the large mammals. We ne- we really need to set these areas aside. And we're such a huge country. You know, we can actually afford to do this. But what we've got to make sure is that these marine parks are being funded, planned, and put in place for the purposes which are legitimate, Mm -hmm. not to block trade.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. In
0: 2016, Laurie Ackerman, the mayor of uh, Fort St. John, uh, sent an open letter to the British Columbian community. And in part, she writes, Canada has 83,000 kilometers of pipelines. Three million barrels of crude oil is transported safely every single day. B.C. has over 43,000 kilometers of pipelines. If we took that oil out of the pipelines, we'd need 4,200 rail cars to move it. How many of those cars would you like rolling through your community? Between 2002 and 2015, 99.9995% of liquid was transported through our pipelines safely. you probably spill more when you fill up at the gas stations. And she uh, adds, I understand why you don't want tankers floating down our beautiful B.C. coast." But did you know the USA has been shipping up to 600,000 barrels a day of crude from Alaska to the Puget Sound through the Salish Sea for the last 20 years? That was written in 2016. Vivian Krauss is my guest. At Fair Questions on Twitter, and uh, she's discovered uh, where the money's coming from and where it's going to from American interests to uh, vilify the oil and the natural resources industry in this country to stop the pipelines and, uh, and, Vivian, that's for the, to the benefit of the United States.
5: Yeah, you pretty much sum it up, Roy. You know, I, I think that the key question we need to ask here is, is in whose interest is it mm-hmm. to keep Canadian oil out of world markets? In fact, those are the, that's the way that Bill Good phrased it. He's a longtime broadcaster in British Columbia, where the media is finally now starting to, to discuss this issue. But that's the question we have to ask, you know, who benefits? When, when these environmental groups are taking a sledgehammer to the Alberta oil industry, meanwhile, there's absolutely no such multi-million dollar campaign against Texas, no campaign against North Dakota, no campaign against Oklahoma or any of the other U.S. states where the oil production is boomed. And that's the thing that we have to we have to uh, I think deal with is that as a as a as a world we're 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 embarking on this great green shift right everybody wants to go greener everybody wants to be more green and that's great that's terrific There's nothing wrong with renewable energy as long as we can afford it but what's happening now is that in the name and under the guise of protecting the environment U S the United States is getting an unfair advantage because Canada is being kept out of the global markets. Investors are being scared away from Cam- from Canada. We're losing out on hundreds of billions of dollars of potential revenue. Meanwhile, oil production is booming in the United States. They have lifted their export ban and the US is now exporting oil to more than 20 countries.
0: And where now, is the, the and Vivian, where is there the sound of the peep of even one protest about the tankers coming down the St. Lawrence River and going through the environmentally sensitive Gaspé region, to Montreal, to the refineries, we don't hear anything. Nobody says a word. Nobody's up Nobody's up in arms against it. And yet, Denny Kader wanted to stop Energy East from going through Quebec, and the federal government did nothing to uh, really intervene. So... Are our politicians, they're not asleep. They're aware. They must be aware.
5: Oh, of course they're aware. So there's I mean, something think, going on here. We have to think of the, of the predicament that our, our prime minister is in, in particular. You know, one, one of the, the things he's got to deal with is, of course, it's pretty impossible to keep everybody happy. You got, you're going to have to disappoint somebody at some point. And think of it in terms of the Canada-U.S. relationship, right? You know, you know the United States, they really don't need much from Canada. But there's one thing that they need, that they want, and they want it desperately, and that's our oil. Because right now, about a quarter of the oil that the U.S. uses is from Canada. And and the thing is, if they weren't getting that oil from, from Canada, they'd be bringing it in from the Middle East. They'd be even more dependent on East oil. So if we build pipelines, what we are doing is breaking the U.S. monopoly on our oil. That's what we need to realize, is that, these, the real issue here isn't so much the environmental risks. Those can be dealt with. And we are competent people, engineers, scientists, and technicians. We can build these pipelines. But we have to realize that in building them so we can export to markets other than the U.S., mm-hmm. other than taking it by land across the border, we break the U.S. monopoly. We take away their exclusive access to international uh, exports of our oil.
3: And
0: they play, and they play rough. These people play rough.
5: Well, we yeah we we just have to you know we we'll have to realize that our prime minister, for example, if he were to back um, Northern Gateway or Energy East, then he's choosing Canadian interests over the interests of his pals in the U.S. And that's that's what we need to understand. Is imagine look at this, try and look at this from the eyes of our prime minister. He's got a very difficult choice to make. You know, I think if he. If he were to, to approve the type of, of uh, pipeline projects that the former prime minister approved, he would get the exact same frosty response. He would get the cold shoulder from the United States just in the same way that the former prime minister did. So that's the issue. That's why it is so important for Canadians to understand the predicament, understand the difficult choice that whoever it is that is in the office of our prime minister has to make. That's not an easy choice. It's not an easy thing to tell your neighbor, hey, that one thing that you want from us more than anything, that one thing, the exclusive access to our oil exports, can't have it. Because now we want to sell to India. We want to sell to China. You think that the United States wants to happily give up that?
0: No, and I don't. don't. And Vivian, I've got about 30 seconds, but i tell you what I would do if I was the Prime Minister of Canada. I'd say my interests are Canada, my interests are Canadian people. America will do what we can. We won't do what we can't. Get in line. I know, I know it, it's easy for me to say that in the studio, but trust me, if I was in the PMO, I'd be saying the same thing.
5: I believe you, Roy. I believe you, and I'd be saying the same thing, too. It's a lot easier said than done, though.
0: You would I be my natural resources to minister. I've got. got to I gotta run. Right about it. Vivian, i got to run. Please come back.
1: Love to. Thanks so much, Roy. Thank
0: you. Vivian Krause, at Fair Questions on Twitter.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.
0: Dan McTague is the principal analyst for GasBuddy.com, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You and I talked about gasoline prices. When you were a member of parliament, that goes back a couple of decades, my friend.
6: It's been going on for a long time, Roy. I didn't have gray hair back in those days.
0: Well, don't complain.
6: <laughs> Although I think the price is giving me plenty more. Perhaps I'm going to
0: lose some along the way. So what is is anything different other than the proportions today from what it was 20 years ago? Uh, What has
6: happened, Roy, is that much of the uh, landscape of gasoline has changed dramatically. No longer are the major oil companies uh, owning gas stations. They've sold a good number of them off to small uh, convenience stores, some large, very large uh, groups. uh, Think here of uh, infamous Max Milk, Becker's, better known as Kustav. They now uh, have a pretty strong presence, having taken over pretty much all of the Uh, SO gas stations. Shell did very much the same thing. And so the landscape has changed. But what hasn't changed, of course, is that uh, you are seeing some pretty significant price increases, especially on the premium side. And let me explain why that is very simply. You see in markets like Hamilton, London, Edmonton, Calgary, uh, Winnipeg, uh, Regina, Saskatoon, uh, even Kamloops, where there is no longer any money being made selling gasoline. In other words, uh, you're often selling gasoline as a station at a price which is pretty much what you paid for it. So you have to make up the difference some other way. If you're not selling oodles and oodles of potato chips and chocolate bars, you're going to make it on premium gasoline. And so gasoline, many vehicles are now uh, responding to the requirements uh, globally, but also the corporate average fuel efficiency uh, mandates in the United States of better fuel mileage. And so premium has become... Uh, the uh, the rule of the day, uh, mostly because of the uh, uh, the kind of configurations on vehicles, smaller engines, more power uh, using premium gasoline. Think here of turbo. So what we're seeing is, you know, money lost selling regular gasoline is made up selling premium and diesel and other products.
0: Mm. Well, I have an SUV. It's not small. It's not massive. It's big, but it's not it's not huge. It has a 3.5 liter V6 engine. Why, am I, why do I have to buy premium at 41 a buck forty one a litre? And we both know that the premium doesn't cost any more to, uh, to refine than the, uh, than the regular. I guess you told us because that's where they make the profits. That's right.
6: And, of course, if you look at premium gasolines, it uh, requires one, more, one really important component called alkylates. And, of course, we just haven't kept up, kept up with the times either in Canada or the United States. price for alkylates on markets is extremely expensive as demand has soared, uh, in some instances, almost tripled. Uh, but yes, the difference everyone understands. Whether you are in Vancouver, or or Calgary, or Toronto, or you know Hamilton here, uh, or out in the east coast, the difference is about nine and a half cents a liter. That's at the wholesale level, and you're paying 19. So that 10 cent a liter margin is really where uh, gas stations are able to survive, and it, with an increasing number of people using premium gasoline engines, I think it's because of the sensitivity of the engines. They can perform better using less fuel, but they have to use higher-quality fuel uh, octanes that are above 90 or 91, so that's really uh, an important point, and I think it uh, a lot of people are not paying a lot of attention to this, but as the market changes, so is the way in which uh, we
0: are being priced how do we compare with the rest of the world it used to be look don't comp- complain about our gasoline when we were paying 80 or 90 cents a liter for regular don't compare complain because they're paying 8 or 9 bucks a gallon in uh, in, in europe so sure. but how do we compare globally now where are we uh, we're
6: now moving uh, well towards uh, in in instances like uh, vancouver victoria lower mainland bc a lot more like europe at about 560 570 a gallon I just want to remind people that regular gasoline in Vancouver, Lower Mainland, downtown Metro is about a dollar forty-eight point nine. I've seen a dollar fifty-two point nine, but that works out to about five sixty-five to five seventy a U.S. gallon. So that would put us on par with Germany, uh, although Germany is a little bit more expensive than that. The conversion I haven't seen lately, and that is of course a red herring because the Canadian dollar does fluctuate dramatically as it has in the past little while. Weaker Canadian dollars, of course, contributing to this. But if we were, say, down among OECD countries in the you know, the top, the, the bottom 10 in terms of price, we are now probably somewhere in the middle. And uh, that is likely to increase as governments uh, uh, take, particularly when it comes to uh, carbon taxes. By the way, expect it to be about 15.5 cents a litre for diesel in the next three years. At least 13.5, I'd call it 14.5 for gasoline. And, of course, uh, I'm not even dealing with premium here, which would be slightly higher than that as well. So all prices are going to rise, and they have a lot to do with governments uh, taking an ever-increasing amount to uh, pay to uh, uh, protect the sky from falling.
0: Yeah, they've done a really good job of that, haven't they, over the last numbers of decades?
6: <laughs> well, you and I live in the province of Ontario. I uh, hope you like your rates now, and you love them even more after for hydro after uh, the end of June when they skyrocket once again. Uh, No, there's a huge cost to uh, undertaking these uh, massive, wonderful pie-in-the-eye, pie-in-the-sky approaches. Uh, My sense is that it's going to become extremely unaffordable, and that's the way some people in this country want it.
0: Well, we uh, have—exactly, there are people who don't want us to drive, who don't want us to have access to vehicles, who want us to use— public transit. This country is not built for public transit, maybe in major cities, within the boundaries of major cities, but after that it becomes a bit of a hassle. Even if you're looking at uh, city-to-city transportation, it can be challenging in the wintertime. But is there a move underway, as some people have suggested, politically, uh, Dan, with the the acquiescence of the oil companies to get us to the $2 uh, liter for regular, to really cause people to say, I guess I'll just drive this on Saturdays.
6: I don't think that'll happen anytime soon. I think in Vancouver, though, they are looking at that pot prospect. If they continue to see uh, the small refineries that they have uh, you know, shut down for periods of time, or will they really rely more fundamentally on the Americans? I mean, the great tragedy is that while we go to $2 a liter, we're getting less and less for our oil, even though the world wants it. I, I can't tell you the B billions of dollars that American refineries and others around the world have invested in to take advantage of Canadian heavy oil. But Canadians are allowing a very small, very determined, uh, very noisy group uh, who happens to be a distinct minority in blocking us from being able to sell our oil. And as a result, it damages our revenue streams, our national finances, our provincial finances. We are incurring debts, uh, the likes of which we have not seen, and that's a federal and provincial uh, issue. If we're not prepared to put our resources to the world market who wants it, then some, some others are going to be willing to do it, and they'll do it at uh, a much more enviable price. An example, an illustration. If I'm buying Western Canadian select oil, I'm an American, I can buy it for $29.39 a barrel. If I want to buy Venezuelan oil, it's still costing me $55 a barrel. In other words, basket case, Venezuela is able to get almost double the price of oil that we are here in Canada.
0: So this is what I was talking to Vivian Krauss about in the last half hour, and that is the determined actions by this small group of, of heavily financed, uh, well-invested, uh, powerful Americans who like things the way they are, that they get our oil at, at scrap money, and don't want anything to change and our federal and provincial governments are not don't have the uh, the uh, what is that anatom- yeah. anatomical term uh, to to challenge <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> to challenge them and so we are we're costing our economy billions and multiples of billions of dollars probably a month which means that's money that we can't invest in our social programs in our infrastructure programs and what do we do we start mumbling about carbon taxes so we can try to get some more money out of already heavily overtaxed individuals who are just trying to get to work and back when there's no need for that. We have, we, we can have such massive amounts of money coming in from selling our natural resources, our gas and our oil, to markets that want it, and yet we're being stymied by a crew in the United States and a spineless gang in Canada.
6: Well, there's a lot of brainwashing that goes along with this, but uh, we can't have the tail wagging the dog. Or in the case of British Columbia, three green seats. I call the tick in the tail of the, wagging the dog um, from understanding the full dimensions of what, uh, what is necessary. We have to get our oil to market. Uh, it is guaranteed our standard of living in Canada. Oil itself and the rise of fossil fuels explains why, you know, several billions of people around the world can live, have access to pharmaceuticals, the best of treatments that are available out there, transportation second to none, asphalt roads, jets. I mean, we've really improved as a, as a society using fossil fuels if they want to denigrate that they're really speaking against the success in which they uh they, they currently live in the standard living that the really the quality of life that we have but there is something else I, I jumped on earlier this week and i don't vivian may have mentioned this but on march first the us uh, House of Representatives uh, committee on uh, science space and technology came out with uh, an interesting report on the russian attempts to influence influence u.s domestic energy markets by exploiting social media and they among other things they pointed out two intrinsically important projects to Canada. Enbridge Line 5, I'll get to that in a moment, and the Keystone XL pipeline, of course, which we knew was scuppered by the previous administration in the U.S., now, of course, resuscitated under this president. Uh, But the interesting part with Enbridge Line 5 is that we don't get oil from uh, Western Canada via that pipeline. You can shut down pretty much all of Ontario's chemical industry as well as, as its oil industry. And you'd probably leave Ontario without much gasoline and oil and diesel and jet fuel. So, you know, there's a real uh, attempt here at trying to drive an agenda, which at the end of the day is nothing short of economic vandalism and likely to undermine the very social programs that many of these people on the on the political left um, seem to uh, espouse as being a, a natural right. You have to fund these things. And, you know, this kind of money doesn't grow off trees it is something we exploit. It comes out of the ground. And we do a damn good job at it.
0: Yeah, but Dan, you know, windmills, man. Windmills. <laughs> windmills. There's your answer. Wind, build more windmills. Yeah, well, you know, I, my riding was Pickering.
6: You, one nuclear reactor there could produce more than the next 50 years of windmills produced in all of Canada. So, I, I mean, we can talk about these things and we can feel good about these things. I don't feel good, though, when, you know, as many people do, have to look after, you know, uh, loved ones, elderly Mm -hmm. parents uh, who can't afford to make ends meet because the hydro rates in this province have gone through the roof. And I'm not pointing fingers. That policy has failed. It ought to be replaced. And if it's not replaced, then those who espoused it ought to be replaced. I think that opportunity comes up in June.
0: Well, we already know that in Europe, there are many people who die each winter because they cannot afford to stay warm. In the UK, there are many seniors, uh, in, in huge numbers, who will ride uh, city buses from morning until night because that's the only place they can be warm. They, they can't afford to, to eat their homes. And uh, they're projecting, uh, I saw the numbers, I have them at home actually, something like 100,000 people are expected to die by 2030 or 2050 because of the massive increases in electricity prices and the total collapse and failure. Our almost total collapse and failure of the, uh, of the uh, alternative energy programs.
6: Yep. Same groups of people don't want shale fracking in Europe, same individuals who want to rely more and more on Gazprom coming from Russia with all of its political baggage in order to uh, stay alive. No, frankly, you know these are examples of where we are heading to a very cold period, mm-hmm. and uh, we have the, the ability to sell and to ensure that people are looked after, but there seems to be a resolute community out there that wants to invent an issue. Um, Certainly Europeans know that today when things are as cold as they are. Um, And that issue is, of course, having a detrimental impact on people who otherwise could live fairly decent lives with energy that has uh, been not just the promise of the future, but has sustained the kind of standard of living that we all enjoy today.
0: Exactly. That's how we grew. That's how we grew. That's how we got away from you know, the candle era, and actually started using light bulbs and started to have medicine that, her- that worked that kept people, people healthy and kept people living longer and provided a decent quality of life. And now what's happened is I think there's a group of people who exploit social media to convince eight-year-olds that uh, if, if, you, uh, if you pump gas, you're destroying the world. Yeah. And the eight-year-old d- d- provides that message to dad every time the eight-year-old's in the backseat.
6: <laughs> well, there was uh, an interesting Call me a cynic. Yeah, well, I mean, there is there, these groups are there. They're well funded. They're well healed, We know where they're coming from, uh, whether it's the tide organza- Tides organization, whether it happens to be the Rockefeller Institutes. Uh, Vivian may have talked about this more than I. I'm certainly aware of. But uh, when you know every, uh, a, a House of representatives, uh, U.S. senators come forth with views. That some of these sites that are designed to, uh, to denigrate our energy, our natural gas and other, our energy prowess as uh, the U.S. and Canada continue to increase our energy output to make the world a lot safer, certainly for us here in continental North America.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. And
0: the take uh, continues in the two minutes we have left. Are things going to get better? Or will things improve? Or are we just uh, condemned to be led by clowns?
6: Well, it's it's pervasive, uh, whether it's in what, what some teach in schools or whether it is uh, what some uh, in media choose not to cover or what they do cover. I, you know, the fact is where people, I think, and the intersection is, is coming very quickly are those who don't have jobs, those who realize we now have a third generation that's going to have to pay for the accumulated debts, which have just been earned in the past couple of years by governments, and I'm not being... Partisan, but I, I think there is certainly a concern, a growing concern, that we're not able to maintain our standard of living because we are throwing away and turning our back on the very wealth uh, makers, uh, the very things that have created wealth in this country. But I also think there is uh, a, a, a tipping point where people are starting to say, and I saw this in Vancouver in the past week, where when it hit a dollar fifty a liter, suddenly you had people making two choices: either, obviously, their anger with uh, representatives, but most importantly, just driving south to the border and choosing to. Uh, you know, to spend what little amounts they can to make ends meet, uh, to uh, to avoid these prohibitive prices, and if Canada's going to go down that route, uh, I think there's going to be a serious reversal of, uh, of fortunes because I think we'll. Lead a lot of people to uh, to take uh, the, the the best way out of it, and that's to uh, remove governments that are committed to these kind of false yeah, that are leading to high prices.
0: Let's give them the heave ho, um, Dan. Thank you very much for the time. You know, if we just opened up the uh, the taps and let the, uh, the 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 oil go where it's required globally, and we saw the money pouring back in, people would realize very quickly what we're doing to ourselves now. Always Absolutely. great talking to you, my friend. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me, Roy. All the best. Dan McTague, GasBuddy.com.
1: The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.